0: April the 10th, 2016, lecture discussion number 236 on the book of Romans. Okay, as per usual, a quite large pile is awaiting us. Most of it on the board here, but I've got a lot more to go. The difficulty is going to be gathering all the pieces that I've strewn about. There are hundreds of them I know. Today I thought, well, I'll go ahead and get this done. Ananias and Sapphira, but I wrote 15 pages. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I'm going to go as fast as I can. You may have noticed that I lose track. I have a tendency to leave items of interest behind. Uh, this can be a little bit frustrating to those who like very neat, highly organized, alphabetized rows of ribboned boxes. Uh, uh, that's not happening here. Pretty bows all the same and name tags, They did not work for me, and so I know it's frustrating, but uh, there aren't hardly any of those kind of people here. Today is for sure. It's sunny today. This is it. This is summer. I hope you like it. Days will start getting shorter here in, what, a couple of months, and we'll be back to winter. Bad sledding. But uh, I am aware that, that I don't attract very many people that that uh, want this kind of organized thing, it's very difficult for them to endure me. Psychological health agencies, they have their own designated parking spot out there. uh, They come by unannounced routinely. So uh, I don't uh, worry too much about it. But I do know there's quite a few on the Internet that get frustrated with me. And by the way, it's not true that the health agencies have their own parking spot. It's not true. But I I do have my system. It scares people. And uh, I get that. And it is messy. And it seems to be chaotic. And it's easy to get lost and confused. But here's the serious part. When you're going to study the Bible seriously, it's going to be hard. Bible study that is uh, fruitful is going to be hard. It's going to require careful, prayerful thought. The best advice I can give someone who is studying the Bible is if your conclusions on a passage that you're studying are simple, then immediately reconsider. Try again. And yes, I recognize that Scripture is layered. Some doctrines are actually identified as elementary principles of Christ, Hebrews 6, 1 through 2. Let me give you those really fast. Grace versus works. That's salvation by grace versus salvation by works. That is identified in Hebrews 6, 1 through 2, that incredible topic, as an elementary principle of Christ, as is the doctrines of the washings. It says laying on of hands, but it's really the sevenfold priesthood cleansing provisions that Paul is... Uh, Explaining there. The high priest uh, laying on of hands is specifically the two goats of Yom Kippur. There's five resurrections of the dead. If you ask somebody, anybody, typically how many resurrections are there, there's five. And then there's the great white throne judgment. Those are considered the elementary principles of Christ. Elementary. Those are the beginning things. And he says, once you have accomplished the beginning thing, it's time to get off of them and go on to maturity. Suffice to say, the contemporary church of today, I know, I know that's a redundancy. Don't write me. Hi. Let me go about my advertising system. It's intentionally a redundancy. I repeated it. It's repetitious by design for effect. It's kind of my way doing things. I'm explaining that to the Internet audience. Anyway, Anyway, the the contemporary church of today has none of the Hebrews 6, 1 through 2 principles. By none, I mean none, nil. They have zero knowledge, a complete void of interest towards the elementary principles of Christ. You should ask, why is that so? Because it is so. The old adage that if you wanted to get elected, all you have to do is promise cake and circuses has gotten into the church. The church thinks that if they entertain their masses, that they will have masses. And if you give them hard, serious Bible study, you will not have viability. So that is where we are, I believe. Okay, we left off last week at Acts 5. That's the list on the board here, comparing the man gathering wood on the Sabbath with Ananias and Sapphira. It is Daniel, uh, 1st Daniel's fault. Note that both are essentially a trial and a sentence. This is a trial and it has a sentence. Obviously, we have the interrogation, or if you will, the prosecution uh, questioning the Plaintiff or the defendant, I guess, in this case it would be more accurate. So I have this trial system with a defendant and it ends with a sentencing. The man gathering wood, Numbers 15:32 through 36, is also tried and found guilty of a grave offense of great wickedness resulting in all of Israel covering him in stones and the subsequent memorializing of that particular incident with blue tassels on their tallits. Ananias and Sapphira are also likewise subjected to a trial, and they instantly die. And that, I hope, caught your attention, the instant death. They're wrapped and carried and buried by young men. And I asked last week, who are these young men? Why are they so prominent in this story? Twice they have to wrap, carry, and bury somebody. Why them? Obviously, the first time I read these kinds of things, I always ask, why young men? Why not old men? What, old men can't carry one body? Anyway, try to ask yourselves as I go on, why did these young men have the job of pulling the body of Ananias and the body of Sapphira and wrapping her and him up and carrying them outside and bury them? Where did they bury them, by the way? During the postgame last Sunday, the other Daniel, not to be confused with the other Daniel. I have two Daniels. Each of them are the other Daniel, depending on which Daniel I'm addressing. I need a third Daniel. The other Daniel brought up Achan from Joshua 7. The other Daniel knows who he is now. And that, of course, let me get this. That, of course, is the dedicated garment. But it's really the 36 dead. It's not the accursed garment. The word actually means dedicated. Almost sanctified. Clearly, the garment belongs to God in that story. And it's important to know that. So why is it His? Why does He identify that Babylonian garment as something that He owns? Because He does. Where else does he have a garment that he owns? That's the first thing you do, is go about looking that up. But the 36 dead are probably as equally important in that story, in my view. As you know, 36, if I take the sum of 36, 1 plus 2 plus 3, uh, 10 plus 11 plus 12, if I continue that addition, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5, all the way up to 31 plus 32, 33, 35, 36, whatever, if I add up all the numbers in the number 36 and put them together, it, of course it gives you 666. So that tells you that something about those 36 dead men is profoundly wicked and greatly evil. It is wise to know that. Same things happening in Ananias and Sapphira. There is great evil. Same things happening with the man who is gathering wood on the on the Sabbath. Grave wickedness. Finding the grave wickedness in each of those events or each of those passages Each of those true stories is very, very important so that you do not get lost. Achan took the devoted or the separated out or the dedicated garment. He took it after God explicitly told Israel not to do this. Everyone in Israel heard God say, don't do it. Achan did it anyway. I always ask the question, how many are in the conspiracy with Achan? You think he did it by himself? We went through all of that. How did he get into Jericho? How did he find the garment? How did he get it out? I've got gold there too, a wedge of gold. I have silver there. Anyway, God Himself eventually, God Himself goes through all of the, all of the tribes of Israel and He points, essentially He does, pulls Achan out by Himself. So God does that to Achan identifies Aiken as the one who hid the things, and we have a trial. and we have a heap of stones and we have a memorial in the heap of stones. Now, I can't repeat the Aiken story again. That's not a redundancy. because I have repeated the Aiken story before. see? So I can't repeat it again. Never mind. Not a single person got that joke. That doesn't deter me. I'll try it again. Oh, thank you, Becky. Thank you. There, I just want you today to know that there is a difference between Achan and Ananias and Sapphira and the wood man, or the man gathering wood. There's a critical distinction between Achan and Ananias and Sapphira and the wood man. Besides the thirty-six dead. And I'll make the case that Achan is more so like the adulterous woman of John 8. He's very much feathered into her uh, than he is. He is very much, uh, as I said just a second ago, not the same as Ananias and Sapphira of Acts 5 or this man gathering wood in Numbers 15 on the Sabbath, even though both of them were buried in heaps. But I'm, I'm wandering off track a bit. So let me regroup. Let's reread the introduction to Acts 5 again so that everybody gets on the bus one more time. In case you missed it last week, this is the important part. People ask me all the time, why don't you just do this lecture in five minutes? Uh, You can. I could. Okay, ten minutes. This is a lot more interesting, I hope. Here we are, 431. This is what happened. This is what transpires that, if you will, leads directly. It introduces Acts 5, which is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. We need a place to put these three things. The first thing that happens is the shaken place. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, the multitude of those who believed there were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. In other words, everybody agreed that they possessed nothing, a key piece of information, obviously. But they had all things in common and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So I now have the resurrection of Christ. And great grace was upon them all. Great grace. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And this would normally be Joshua or Joseph. And Joseph, who also was named Barnabas by the apostle, apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, So I need to re-emphasize these three things. The shaken room, the witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the great grace. Those three things introduce Ananias and Sapphira. Upon those three things, the instant deaths of Ananias and Sapphira are actually placed. In other words, the shaken room and the resurrection of Christ and the great grace are the antecedents, the immediate predecessors to the actions of Ananias and Sapphira. And any conclusion that you have on Ananias and Sapphira has to be weighed against this shaken room, the resurrection of Christ and the great grace. So if you, let me just say it this way, pretty much without exception, in the contemporary church of today, Acts 5 is analyzed apart from Acts 4, 31 through 37. And that causes significant turmoil and almost universal error. That is why hardly anyone in the church today knows what the story of Ananias and Sapphira is really about. Because they separated out from that which is immediately before and that which is, it is built upon. Also keep in mind that all of this really starts, if you want to think of it this way, at Acts 3. I have a lame man. He's age 40, Acts 4.22. He's lame from birth. It said he's lame from his mother's womb. So start thinking about it. I want you to picture... What he really looks like now. He's carried and laid daily at the gate of the temple. His job is to beg. That's how he's surviving. So what's the obvious question? How bad a shape is this guy in? How lame is he? I've been fascinated um, by um, uh, Dr. Carson, as you know, who had the ability to take conjoined twins and separate them successfully, even though their brains were interconnected. It's an extraordinary thing that he had a gift he has that is amazing. But I went and studied a little bit of it to see because I'm interested in the mind and the brain. I have two individuals. We talked about it again in the post game as well. but I want you if you see the pictures of conjoined twins, they' they're pretty. Extraordinary. The survival rate's very low. I want you to imagine what this man looked like. How disfigured do you think he is? What is his height and his weight? He's 40 years old. What was the full scope of his defects, if you will? Are they birth defects? How twisted was his body? In any event, this man is absolutely described without strength in his legs and his bones. His bones aren't right. And he needed to be rebuilt. And the Bible says that all the people knew this man. He Forty years. Now, that forty, you think that's an accident? Why isn't he thirty-three, twenty-eight, fifty-one? He's forty years he's laying there begging. So who does he represent? He's representative, as is always the case. Guy God takes real people, he puts them in real situations, they actually occurred, they're literally true, and yet he uses them as only God can to provide doctrinal truths. So all the people knew who this man was, and and he is raised up by Peter. And he is seen by all of these people that have been watching him for 40 years. And all the people it is, are described as filled with wonder, filled with amazement, that this man, after 40 years in this condition, is now walking normally. Even says he's leaping about, he can run. So how badly atrophied was this man? I think you should imagine the worst case. I think the worst case. I submit that only the worst case is consistent with both the wonder and the amazement that is ubiquitous among the people. All the people saw this and were stunned by it. Plus one more piece in the story. That, that lame man has something to do with Ananias and Sapphira. The fact that Peter is the one that raises him up is the key point. Add to that Barnabas. Who's Barnabas? Not even in the story here. Let me put Barnabas up here. Because he ends it. So that'll be AA, I guess. Barnabas ends Acts 4, and then Ananias begins. But Barnabas is a Levite. And interestingly enough, As a Levite, he sells land. That should immediately make you go, well, wait a minute. Levites aren't supposed to have land in Israel. Well, most people will say, well, he's from Cyprus, so he probably has land in Cyprus. I don't think so. He's prohibited to own land in Israel, Deuteronomy 10.9. Does he know that as a Levite? Absolutely he knows. So if he has land in Israel, what's he doing? He is disregarding Deuteronomy 10.9 and other places. Again, I do not think it works if you think the land is in Cyprus. I think the picture that Barnabas paints here is only valuable if the land is in not only valuable, but is more powerful, infinitely more powerful, not infinite. Good grief, pick a word that works. Have some medicine. If he is disregarding the Old Testament prohibitions against him owning land in Israel as a Levite, uh, and he's doing it willfully and purposely, what would be his purpose? To enrich himself. What kind of money does he have now? He has dirty money. And he knows it. So anyway, he sells this land he's got that he knows he should not have owned. It's an act of confession. It's an act of repentance. I think that fits very well with what's going to happen next. Okay, got all of that? Maybe we can restart now. Let me just recap this list. Uh, Ought to do that probably. Ananias and Sapphira, they sell land. They see Barnabas and the others sell land. They might be doing it simultaneously. They might be in the same group. They might all, all of these people were coming forward with their money, right? Ananias and Sapphira, all, by the way, how long does it take to get a real estate agent, get a mortgage banker, get a title insurance company, get the signs out there? How long does it take to sell this land? You gotta get the building inspector. He's gonna flunk you. How long did it take to sell the land? Do you think that they all of a sudden in 15 minutes everybody sold all their stuff? Start figuring out the length of the process. Ananias and Sapphira are part of the process. How long does the process go? And anyway, in any event, they have some land and they sell some of it, but they decide they're going to keep some back. Ask why. They do it knowingly, willfully, a certain part, and they present what they have at the feet of Peter. Peter immediately says, this is a lie of Satan. It has something to do with Satan's lie. You are lying in front of the Holy Spirit. Are you keeping what you have? Why did you conceive this plan? You are lying to God. And then Ananias is dead instantly in young men. Just happened to be around. They wrap him up. They carry him and they bury him. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira comes. And they old, so much? Yes, so much. You're testing God. He has a different question for her. Very significant. Behold, and Sapphira is dead. And these young men, they're ready this time. After they bury... Ananias Peter tells him to hang around I've, let me ask a question this way Ananias comes in as he lays this feet I'm sorry lays this money down at Peter's feet is he trying to trap Peter I say that he is so what is the trap how does the trap work And again, Peter immediately invokes the lie of Satan. So Ananias has a plan and he comes in with his plan. He puts his money at Peter's feet. And then we have what's called the big rut row in Acts 5. Peter goes, lie of Satan. Asking as well, why have you conceived this thing? And declares that Ananias has lied directly to God, purposely and willfully. Ananias has been instantly dead. Next week we'll revisit this. The question to uh, Sapphira was quite different. Peter asks her, how is it that you have agreed together to do this thing? To test the Lord. To test the spirit of the Lord. So, that gives you information that Ananias and Sapphira had done it as a plan. It was something they agreed to do. And how did you do that? How is it that you have agreed to do this? I wish for all of you today to imagine the velocity of the death. Think about what was seen. These young men who were there saw it. Great fear comes over all the church and all who heard about this thing. I erased great fear. It should be number V. Great fear. bunch of obvious questions right there. What are the obvious questions? Why such great fear? All of them had it. All who heard about this. All of the church and all who heard. Why such great fear? Who exactly was afraid? Was Peter afraid? The apostles afraid? Okay, we rule them out. Who's afraid? How about the people? Barnabas, is he afraid? How about the other people that did this legitimately? Who weren't part of the plot? Who weren't part of the trap? Were they afraid? So how many people are afraid? And how large a conspiracy is this? So there we go. Now we can start the sermon. See what we can do. Now comes... The difficult question. My hands are old and wrinkled. So when I'm putting my hand on the product, no one will get this joke that hasn't seen the other videos, will they? We should have a hand model take my place. (laughs) TJ, you could edit that kind of stuff. Dave could obscure it with one of his... uh, Routinely hilarious jokes. By the way, those of you who are on the internet who think I write the blurbs to the sermons, I do not. If you think I'm writing the jokes in the sermon? I'm not doing that either. That is Dave, please send your mail to him. He actually likes it, and so. Anyway, there, we're, we're different. We get that here. Okay, the difficult question, in my opinion, I hope it's obvious, there is an indisputable cause and effect relationship here between the shaking, the resurrection of Christ, and the great grace, and then the actions of Ananias and Sapphira. That shaking, the fact that the resurrection is prominent, there's the great grace that is obvious there, the way the people are affected, how they came to the conclusion they didn't own anything, that is what has impacted Ananias and Sapphira cause and effect may not be precise description maybe the geometric if p then q would be more appropriate or accurate my point is is that Ananias and Sapphira are responding to what i read in acts 431 through 37 even the levite barnabas When he sold his land, that's why he's mentioned. There is no, we'll just throw in Barnabas in the Bible. The Bible doesn't do that. When somebody is brought into focus like that, it is because they are impacting what is going to happen next. Barnabas has impacted Ananias and Sapphira. They saw what Barnabas did. He's a Levite and he's selling his Israel land and they know why he owned it. Everyone knew why the Levites owned land. And they make a decision to respond. And I submit that this, the key, the motive of Ananias, which we know contains aspects of, Peter, of Satan's lie, Peter identifies Satan's lie. Satan's lie starts in Isaiah 14, 13 through 14, right? I will be like the Most High. Boy, when we solve that, which we're not going to do today, many things will open up. What does Satan mean when he says, I will be like God. He doesn't say I will be God. He says I will duplicate Him in some fashion, where I will be like Him. What particular aspect of God has He chosen to be like? As an aside, ask again: Who bought these assets? Who bought the land sold? Where would Bar- Bar- I'm sorry, Barnabas go to sell his land? He's a Levite. A yeah, land for sale. How good a land do you think he's got? Let's just ask this question. Who's the richest man in Anchorage? Okay, it's a pastor. Who's the richest man in every country in the, in the dark ages uh, throughout Europe? Every city. The church. How good a piece of land does he have? How much money is it worth? Who bought it? How quickly did it sell? And by the way, the proceeds were distributed according to need. What need? Ultimately, this is the question. Was Barnabas a wealthy Pharisee? I think it is obvious that he was. The evidence suggests that Barnabas had amassed a considerable fortune, a considerable fortune, which gives us more insight into Ananias. But I'm derailing the train again, aren't I? Focus on the inclusion of Satan. I recognize that people are fond of saying the devil made me do it. The devil did not make you do it. In case you were wondering about that, Satan is not interested in you. We are so insignificant. He does not personally come. He has a system in place. He's focused on the Middle East, primarily Israel and Babylon. His system is far reaching. Do not elevate yourself to where you think Satan is giving attention to you. He isn't. You're perfectly capable of being vile. All of us are by ourselves. That's proven in the millennial rule. whole point of that is, Peter says, Satan is involved here. Why would Satan be involved here? This is the beginning, the origin, the genesis, the birth, if you will, of the church. This is the one and only birth of the church. The church has never been born again. The church is, That's a very bad phrase. The, the birth of the church has only happened one time. The origin of the church has only happened one time. That, by definition, is critical, important, and uh, you should recognize it. Satan is here because this is a very significant time. The Holy Spirit is here. Do you think the Holy Spirit of God, with the sound that he makes when he comes, Satan didn't notice it? Clearly he did. And Peter is identifying Satan's system. So, it is said of Ananias that Satan filled him to lie, Acts 5.3. Compare that, to, I hope you remember Acts 4.31, where the shaking of the place causes this speaking with boldness and this filling by the Holy Spirit. So I have previously in 4.31, I have the filling of the Spirit. Here I have the filling of, of Ananias with Satan. Not necessarily literally, frankly not literally. And Ananias is lying. The apostles are given witness to the body resurrection of Christ and juxtaposed with that is the lie of Ananias. I offer then that the lie of Ananias and the first-hand witnesses of the resurrection of Christ are to be placed side by side. What I mean by that is I've got people saying Christ was bodily resurrected and we saw it. And I have another guy next, immediately next who says some lie of Satan. Acts one twenty two establishes that Those who witnessed the resurrection of Christ are eligible for what office? Do you know? Apostle. If you witnessed the resurrection of Christ in the sense that you saw him resurrected, physically saw him, you get to be an apostle. That's bad news for everyone who is calling themselves an apostle today. You can't be an apostle. Probably one of the biggest bites I ever got in theologically is I sat in front of the man and told him, when did you witness the resurrection of Christ? Acts 1.22 says that is what must be there in order for you to be an apostle. He does not like me to this day. That's okay. I don't feel bad. I'd have handled it better, but I'm not sure. I have low expectations for my behavior in those (laughs) circumstances, which is a good thing. Let me repeat this, because I can't do it enough. The lie of Ananias and the first-hand witness of the resurrection of Christ are purposely Place together, they are opposites. Uh, that's a, the essential attribute for apostleship. Acts four thirty one, four thirty three, Acts one twenty two. Acts four thirty one and four thirty three confirm Acts one twenty two. So we have that uh, that we're now recognizing. I hope as essential to understanding what's really going on here. There's a looming question that comes from Acts 4:31 all the way to the end of this Acts 5:10. In fact, I'm going to say that the entirety of the book of Acts has this looming question over it if you will. It's an overshadowing, a covering, a blanket. And that is the topic of the body resurrection of Jesus Christ. And no case or no place is that greater the case than Acts 5. Acts 5 is If you will, overshadowing all of Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, is the witness of the body resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, um, I don't have time, do I? No, I don't. To repeat the central point of 1 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit using Paul at 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 12 through 7, through to 19, I believe. The risen Christ is our only hope what Paul writes the holy spirit is writing that through paul the risen christ is our only hope if christ is not risen then all preaching is emptiness our faith is also empty 1 corinthians 15:14 if christ is not risen our faith is futile we of all men are the most miserable so the resurrection of christ that's 1 Corinthians 15, 19. The resurrection of Christ. If it isn't true, we are the most miserable people that have ever lived. Of all men, we are the most to be pitied. So the physical resurrection of Christ is proof of something. It's an extraordinary piece of evidence. It. Prove something to us. No other evidence or proof approaches the resurrection of Christ. Thus, the most obvious of the obvious questions. Maybe I should write it. Uh, I'll put it over here somewhere. What does the resurrection of God Let me ask this another way. Did you think God couldn't resurrect himself? Do you say, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting God to overcome death? But he did it. Yay, it was close. I equate it to a basketball game, right? God shoots a free throw. Is it going in? Is he going to make it? No, oh, it hits the rim. Ooh, it's rolling around. Is it going to go in or not? I don't know. Did God, did you think the resurrection of Christ was in doubt ever in your life? Please don't raise your hand. Instead, take your hand and beat yourself in the forehead if you thought that the resurrection of God was ever in doubt. The resurrection of God was never in doubt. So what are we left with? What does it prove? What does it prove? Why is the resurrection of God the singular truth? First Corinthians 15. It identifies it as the singular truth. It's proving something. What is it proving? I hope you notice how I keep saying the resurrection of God. I'm phrasing it on purpose that way. God is resurrecting himself. What does that mean? What does it prove? Why is it so important that if it isn't true, nothing is true ultimately? If the resurrection of God is not true, nothing else is true. It's been my experience that Christians seldom investigate Acts 1.22, our 1 Corinthians 15.12-19. through 19 they're not interested in the evidence of the resurrection there's little interest in it actually thinking that no one wants to really think it through and many have simply abandoned the undertaking on the basis that it can't be comprehended by finite minds we can't understand how god resurrected god but acts 122 and acts 431 through 33 and all of 1 Corinthians 15 frankly stands against that kind of thinking it says the opposite you It's critical that you understand it because of what it gives you. A complete or a depth of understanding of the resurrection of Christ with all of its far-reaching implications is a prerequisite for being able to teach the truths of Christ in boldness. Acts 4.29 You aren't a witness to the resurrection of Christ. You can't be an apostle. And if you are not an apostle, then the ability to preach with boldness about the resurrection of Christ isn't given to you at the time of the origin of the church. Boldness is what? It is bravery. It is confidence. It's assuredness. It's attributes that demand knowledge. You are not going to be bold without knowledge. So let's see if we can take a run at this and find out what will happen. I was explaining to TJ earlier today that the the Jews in Israel have figured out that smoking is really bad. Actually, they figured out that the people who smoke have physical weaknesses that are far, far significant to someone that doesn't smoke. So what have we learned about smoking? It makes you weak. To the Jews, that's an interesting thing because they think differently than us. That tells them that smoking causes accelerated aging, and they, of course, are trying to de-accelerate aging. So to find an accelerant is very valuable information to a Jewish scientist, if not all scientists. But Israel making advances in aging technologies, um, retardants to aging, is it's happening at such a rate. I, I can't even. We talked about it in the pregame. I can't even explain it to you what they're doing. The sign of Lot. Anyway. The point is is that if I have something causing aging, that's important because I'm looking for the opposite of that. And if I can identify the cause, I can identify the opposite. So let's take that tract of thought. What is the absolute opposite of God resurrecting himself? That will begin you on the path to figuring out what the resurrection is evidence of. What is the opposite of God resurrecting himself? What is the absolute opposite of great grace? See, I have these two things building on Ananias and Sapphira. The resurrection of Christ and great grace. So, Ananias is doing the opposite of that. How so? Yeah, you would ask. That's a great question. What is the opposite of God resurrecting himself? What is the opposite of great grace? God, Jesus God, must be risen, or we are hopeless, we will perish. That's what First Corinthians says. If Christ does not rise, no one will rise, 1 Corinthians 15:16. So the opposite of Christ rising is no one rising. There is no resurrection unless God resurrects himself. If Christ does not rise, then what is the condition of the dead? I think it's obvious that the condition of the dead would be nothingness. What is the opposite of existence? Nothingness. No existence. If it is true that the dead have nothingness, then the dead never had somethingness. Do you remember that lecture? If H is not, then she never was. C.S. Lewis. If the dead have no existence, then the dead never had existence because existence demands immortality. We are all dead if we don't if we have nothingness at any time. If we go to nothingness, we only have nothingness. The only thing separating us from nothingness is a period of time which is quite fleeting that is not somethingness actually all-ingness would be more is that a word All-ingness? the opposite of nothingness do I get paid for inventing words for I'm just joking because it's so funny to me that all that people do on the internet is beg for money. So I thought I'd try it just to see if it is as hilarious as I think it is. So far I'm running with it a long way. In other words, if we cease if we go into nothingness, then we're always nothing to begin with, just waiting to be so revealed. What we believe is life, then, is just a temporary state. And that would be true if God does not resurrect himself. The fact that God resurrects himself is evidence, is definitive proof that life is not a temporary state. The body resurrection of Christ impacts, then, the immortality of all of us. If he does not resurrect, you do not have immortality. If he does not resurrect himself, none of us have existence. So, first thing that we're dealing with, with Ananias and Sapphira, is the proof of existence. The body resurrection of Christ testifies that the living soul is indeed true. Put another way, if Christ is not risen, there is no living soul. That's what his resurrection proves. That is why it is so important to understand how it proves it. All of the physical reality is temporal with no purpose. Everything is hopeless if Christ is not risen. By the way, that's exactly what is being taught in every university in the United States, right? That's monism. So God resurrecting God disproves this lie. The key now is how does it disprove it? Well, if we're gonna solve that, what should we do? It's not easy solving that. It's hard to solve that. Is that a shock? So how do you go about solving how it is that the resurrection of Christ proves that you are a living soul and that living souls do in fact have immortality and existence? All that is at stake is your destination. Your destination is dependent upon what? Great grace. So we can now try to figure out how it is that the resurrection of Christ uh, is definitive evidence of existence by now understanding what great grace is. What is the opposite of great grace? What is the exact opposite of of a gift of mercy? What is the exact opposite of a free granting of life? How much did your existence cost you? Did you earn your existence? What is the opposite of free existence? Well, Obviously, it is the earning of judgment. Would you agree? Free mercy is the exact opposite of working for judgment. The deserved or the meriting of death. A rightful execution would be the opposite of a gift of life. Ooh! A rightful execution. Where is that? An instant rightful execution. Grace by definition is marinated in free. You can't have grace without free. It's a gift. It's a giving. It's freely giving. There is no force. There's no coercion. There is no compulsion no violence grace is this giving free mercy those who accept his gift of himself do it freely God is giving himself notice how I say that it's his gift of himself God giving God notice now the congruency of God giving God and God resurrecting God they all have the same dynamic pattern. Both of them do. Anyway, those who accept the free life do so freely. It is critical that you understand that free is free. You can't, I get every time I go to the holiday gas station and I swipe my little tag because I buy way too many things that have aspartame in them. As you know, aspartame, maybe aspartame will sponsor us. Aspartame uh, fights off Alzheimer's. That's my theory. Some of you are disagreeing with me. So far, it seems to be working. We don't know what I would be like without my aspartame. It might be hideous. Don't answer that. Anyway. Every time I'm at holiday, it says this. You have won a free reward. I ask them if it is a free reward. No, it says this. I'm sorry. You have earned a free reward. Well, how can I earn a free reward? I cannot earn a free reward. And I tell them every time. The only thing free is the grace of God. It is the only free thing in existence is the grace of God. So it is the great free, if you will. Anyway, those who accept the free life have to do it freely. You can't do it any other way or you have profaned or polluted the freedom aspect of it. Now, with that established, back we go to Ananias and Sapphira, who are in the context of Acts 4 and now 5, attacking the resurrection of Christ and the truth of the free gift of life. Ananias and Sapphira, they do this. I can't put it on the board. By the way, how long did they plan this? How many meetings did they have? Why didn't God immediately stop them when they began the process? Because he says, you have agreed to this together. You've conceived this. How much time in the process? Again, why didn't God immediately stop them? He could have, but he didn't. Could it have anything to do with the Wrapped, carried, buried guys. But Ananias and Sapphira, they sell land. Why? They give some money. Why'd they give some money? They held back some money. Why'd they hold back some money? Then they lie. They have something to do with Satan's lie. Why did they do that? And they're instantly dead. Not you no know, time at all. Boom. Dead. Soon as it's established, they're down, gone. Notice that they were not were allowed an opportunity before God. To do something. They had a trial. What do you do at your trial? What did Aiken do at his trial? He was given an opportunity to confess. Did Aiken confess? Absolutely, he confessed. Adam had the first trial. Did Adam confess? Absolutely, he confessed. Did Eve confess? Yes, she did. See the tapes. Ask Supper Dave where they are. I have no idea. Somewhere on the internet. All of them had a trial. Ananias and Sapphira are given an opportunity to confess. Do they confess? No. They do not. Achan chooses to confess. He was also given a choice to confess. Notice how I say that. Chooses choice. Anyway, who knew that that uh, Ananias would lie to Peter? How many people knew that he would? I think that it's obvious that he was given a chance, a choice to confess here by Peter. He does not do it. How many knew what the motive of Ananias and Sapphira, the motive of the lie and the reasonings of the lie? By reasonings, I mean the logic of the lie. Did Ananias expect instant death? Did Satan expect instant death for Ananias? Let me ask this question. Did Eve expect instant death? What did Satan, what did he say? By the way, if you want to see instant death again in the Bible, Revelation 19.21, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, instant death again. So we're going to have to compare instant deaths. What is the difference between those deaths and the delayed death of Eve? What does Satan say to Eve, by the way? You will not instantly die. Is that what he said? Actually, he said it in a lot more definitive way, didn't he? You will not surely die. That is one of the lies of Satan, Genesis 3, 4. That is, by the way, why he says, I will be like God. It has something to do with you will not surely die. The young men who witnessed the instant death of Ananias rise up and wrap and carry and bury the body. They likewise, similarly, they were prepared for Sapphira not to confess. They knew she wouldn't confess. Had she confessed, what would have happened? The young men figured out that Sapphira would die. How'd they know that? I have a man and a woman. Both of them instantly die. As opposed to get covered with skins. Confession is a decision. It's a free will decision. Ananias and Sapphira chose to lie at their trials. Adam, and Eve confessed. I can't repeat that enough. So again, what were they expecting? Did they expect that God would? God's right there. They can hear Him. Did they expect that God would believe their lie? That's not reasonable. Unless you think God is not omniscient and not outside and not the creator of time. So what is the reasoning? What is the logic? God demonstrates that to come before him and lie about his resurrection and his free gift of grace, that I know is an intentional redundancy, his free gift of eternal life, if you come before him and lie about that, that is to instantly die. In front of everyone. No delay. Did Ananias and Sapphira think something otherwise would happen? That God would allow them to succeed? That he would allow the lie to stand? If they had succeeded, what would have happened to the young men? What are the proofs of the resurrection of Christ? The resurrection proves, by the way, really quickly, I know I'm going long. The resurrection proves that God cannot die. You wait, you'll say, God really died. God cannot die, and God cannot be killed. If God cannot be killed, what does that prove? It proves many things, by the way. It proves that our spirits exist, are immortal. It proves that our destinations are chosen and willful. That's a free will element. It proves that God will save all who come and to him and believe him without exception. That's what the resurrection of God proves. And the fact that only he he has to initiate and facilitate his death. It cannot be taken from him. His death is not the same as our deaths. Can my death, uh, can my life be taken from me? Oh yeah. So can yours. His life cannot. That is a big difference. Next week we now have enough information to finish it. I know it was an endurance contest. I recognize the buffet it is not up to our normal standards today. That's Matt's fault. Will the what's left of the musicians come forward?